Last week in Deuteronomy, we looked at chapter 21, and we saw there that God's instructions to His people do not assume an ideal world. The Bible is not naive about life. It recognizes very well that this world is broken at every level. Very few things are ever easy or straightforward in this world. It's especially true when it comes to human community and human relationships. And so, as the Bible calls God's people to honor Him, it calls us to honor Him not in an ideal world of ideal relationships. We're to honor Him in the midst of the masses and the complications of real life. We do that by taking sin seriously and by taking respect seriously in every situation, even the most messy ones. Chapter 21 focused on some of the messes and complications of family life, husbands and wives, parents and children. And we saw how the specific details of those situations in ancient Israel, they're unlikely to crop up in the same way for you and me today. Not many of the marriages here today involve a lady who has been previously captured in war, I'm assuming. Not much of our family strife comes from having more than one wife in the family. So the details of our messes today will be different, but the principles remain the same. Whatever the mess, we're called to take sin seriously and we're to take respect seriously. And if we read on through chapters 22 to 25, we find those chapters underlining that point. Chapters 22 to 25 continue the call to honor God in a messy world. And they deal with a wide-ranging list of situations, from the everyday and the mundane to the extraordinary and the bizarre. If you read them, you'll find that instructions from earlier in the book are repeated in those chapters, such as the need for God's people to be a generous people who are intentional and sacrificial in their concern for the poor. Those chapters repeat the call for the place where God's people are to be a place of justice. We also hear about the need to respect our neighbor, our neighbor's property, our neighbor's safety, our neighbor's freedom. We hear about respect for others in business, both for employees and those we do business with. God's people are to be honest in all their dealings. We hear more about respect for women, both young unmarried women and also widowed women. We hear more about respect for family responsibilities. And we hear about respect for animals, both wild and domestic animals. There are in those chapters many reminders to take sin seriously as well, not only by dealing with it when it happens, but also by avoiding it in the first place. And mixed in with all that, situations are mentioned that, as I said, are just bizarre to us. We wonder if they ever actually cropped up in Israelite life. Did anyone ever need the instructions given about them? But as you read chapters 22 to 25, and I encourage you to do that, 
read them not as an attempt to deal with every possible situation in life. Don't read them either as an attempt to deal with the most common situations in life. Read them as underlining the call of chapter 21. That in every situation, no matter how strange, no matter how painful, God's people are to seek to honor him by taking sin seriously and taking respect seriously. Now, I've given that summary of chapters 22 to 25 because this morning we come to chapter 26. It's a significant chapter because it brings to a close a long section of Deuteronomy that began back in chapter 12. Before chapter 12, the focus had mainly been on Israel's past and what they could learn from their past. But chapters 12 through to 26 look forward to the time when the Israelites have crossed over the Jordan River and are living in the promised land. They're full of instructions about how Israel is to live in that place. And they show what it will mean to be God's people in that new place. Chapter 26 closes that section of the book, and as it does, it brings a very important reminder. As Moses ends these chapters that are full of instructions of all kinds, he knows just how easy it would be to go away with the idea that relating to God is all about rules. God gives them, and we keep them, and that's the end of the story. But that would be a wrong idea. Yes, it is absolutely true that God does give us instruction to follow. We've just spoken about that. But that is not all there is to it. Chapter 26 reminds us the way of God and his people is the way of relationship. So let's read this chapter. If you're using a church Bible, it's page 203, or in the larger print Bibles, 311. Moses says to the Israelites, when you have entered the land that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance and have taken possession of it and settled in it, take some of the first fruits of all that you produce from the soil of the land that the Lord your God is giving you and put them in a basket. Then go to the place that the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name and say to the priest in office at that time, I declare today that the Lord your God, to the Lord your God, that I have come to the land the Lord swore to our ancestors to give us. The priest shall take the basket from your hands and set it down in front of the altar of the Lord your God. Then you shall declare before the Lord your God, my father was a wandering Aramean and he went down into Egypt with a few people and lived there and became a great nation, powerful and numerous. But the Egyptians ill-treated us and made us suffer, subjecting us to harsh labor. Then we cried out to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our misery, toil, and oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm with great terror and with signs and wonders. He brought us to this place 
and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now I bring the first fruits of the soil that you, Lord, have given me. Place the basket before the Lord your God and bow down before him. Then you and the Levites and the foreigners residing among you shall rejoice in all the good things the Lord your God has given to you and your household. When you have finished setting aside a tenth of all your produce in the third year, the year of the tithe, you shall give it to the Levite, the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow so that they may eat in your towns and be satisfied. Then say to the Lord your God, I have removed from my house the sacred portion and have given it to the Levite, the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, according to all you commanded. I have not turned aside from your commands, nor have I forgotten any of them. I have not eaten any of the sacred portion while I was in mourning, nor have I removed any of it while I was unclean, nor have I offered any of it to the dead. I have obeyed the Lord my God. I have done everything you commanded me. Look down from heaven your holy dwelling place and bless your people Israel and the land you have given us as you promised on oath to our ancestors, a land flowing with milk and honey. The Lord your God commands you this day to follow these decrees and laws. Carefully observe them with all your heart and with all your soul. You have declared this day that the Lord is your God and that you will walk in obedience to him, that you will keep his decrees, commands, and laws, that you will listen to him. And the Lord has declared this day that you are his people his treasured possession, as he promised, and that you are to keep all his commands. He has declared that he will set you in praise, fame, and honor, high above all the nations he has made, and that you will be a people holy to the Lord your God, as he promised. This is God's word, and it's about relationship, as we've said. It tells us relationship with God involves celebrating the goodness of God. It involves committing to live a life of goodness ourselves. And it involves God and his people moving forward together. So first, relationship with God involves celebrating the goodness of God. The point of these first 11 verses is that our obedience to God is not the foundation of our relationship with Him. The foundation is God's goodness to us. And as God's people, our first preoccupation will be celebrating His goodness to us. I'll say that again in case you missed it. As God's people, our first preoccupation will be celebrating His goodness to us. Anything else that we focus on in terms of our service and our obedience, those things will be the overflow of this. This is primary. And if this is not primary, then the other stuff will either never happen at all, or if it does happen, it will be joyless. 
will do it with a resentful attitude. And it will very quickly run out of fuel and wither away from our lives. If you want to begin a relationship with God, if you want to nurture your existing relationship with God, then get absorbed in celebrating His goodness. Look how that's set out here in the passage, verse 1. When you have entered the land that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance and have taken possession of it and settled in it, take some of the first fruits of all that you produce from the soil of the land that the Lord your God is giving you and put them in a basket. Then go to the place that the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name. That place would eventually be the temple in Jerusalem. Go there and say to the priest in office at the time, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come to the land the Lord swore to our ancestors to give us. So the worshiper brings this basket of produce, vegetables or fruit, whatever it is, it's hard, tangible evidence of God's goodness. Long ago, he promised Israel this land as their inheritance, and now the worshiper says, here I am, able to testify to God's goodness in the present. This basket shows I am reaping the results of His goodness to me. Then verse 4 says, the priest will take the basket at that point, which leads to another declaration from the worshiper. This time it tells the story of God's redemption of His people. To begin with, it explains the miserable situation that needed God's redemption. Have a look at verse 5. Then you shall declare before the Lord your God, my father was a wandering Aramean, and he went down into Egypt with a few people and lived there and became a great nation, powerful and numerous. But the Egyptians ill-treated us and made us suffer, subjecting us to harsh labor. That first statement, my father was a wandering Aramean. That is an unusual way to put things. Who is it referring to? Well, obviously, it's about ancestry. None of the Israelites who are about to enter Canaan had a father alive before the time in Egypt. That was hundreds of years ago at this point. So the candidates for father here would be the founding fathers of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So why not just say that? Why say, my father was a wandering Aramean? I think this is a way of saying, my ancestry was nothing special. There was no pedigree there in terms of deserving God's attention or his great promises. I just descended from a wandering Aramean. Actually, there's some ambiguity in that word, wandering. It certainly often means wandering around, but it's often translated in the Old Testament as starving or perishing. And commentators suggest that both meanings of the word actually are intended here together. The worshiper is saying, here's what I can tell you about my past. I come from a people who are homeless and dying. That's my claim to fame. In our starving state, we moved down to Egypt in search of food. And yes, we multiplied there. 
But Egypt didn't help us, not in the long run. It wasn't a true home for us. It left us just as perishing as we were before. We lived there as slaves. So this declaration begins with an admission of lostness and hopelessness. And then it moves to a recollection of God's salvation. Verse 7, Then we cried out to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our misery, toil, and oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great terror and with signs and wonders. He brought us to this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. This is a story of perishing homeless slaves becoming saved heirs with a home. And this Israelite is able to say, it's my story. God's goodness has brought me from a living death to a blessed life. And so while it is true that celebrating God's goodness includes the day-to-day stuff, like a good harvest or a thriving family, while God's goodness includes those things, the emphasis here is on celebrating the big, big thing, the move from death to life. As God's people celebrate His goodness, their focus is on His goodness shown in their salvation above all else. And can you see how that is the same for us? The focus of our celebration is not an exodus from slavery in Egypt, no, but it is an exodus from slavery to sin. And we wouldn't say that our background was Aramean, and we may never have been literally starving or homeless, But don't we have to admit, when it came to our eternal future, we were perishing and homeless. And there was no pedigree in us to attract God's favor to us. And so the main goodness of God that we celebrate is His salvation. And of course, we often have a long list of other things to celebrate, But even in times when we don't, even in times when we don't have good health to praise Him for, or we don't have good finances to praise Him for, or we don't have a flourishing family or a fulfilling career to praise Him for, even if those things are all missing from our lives, we celebrate the truth that God has delivered us from a living death. He's brought us into eternal life. He accomplished that through the work Jesus did on the cross, dying in our place so we could live. Maybe you're listening to this and you like this idea of a relationship with God. Maybe for you that's a new way of thinking about things. If that's the case, please notice how a true relationship with God is based on His salvation. It is not based on what you and I bring to the table. 
Because as hard as it can be to admit it, we don't really bring anything to the table. Not in terms of things that might make a relationship with us appealing from God's side. We have no more to offer God than these Israelites did with their background as wandering Arameans. Our relationship with God is based on what he has done for us. Lifting us up from our lost situation, giving us new life in Jesus Christ. So if you want to experience a relationship with God, come and trust in Jesus. And then begin a life of celebrating his saving goodness. The saving goodness of God is why we Christians sing. We don't sing because we think we're really good at it. A handful of you might be good at it, but most of us sound like we're howling at the moon. Occasionally my mic gets left on in the singing, so you all know I am one of the howlers. But we sing with enthusiasm all the same, because God has poured out his undeserved saving goodness on us. And as we focus on that, we can't help singing. And that is why the curtailment of our singing during the pandemic It made church a lot less of a celebration than it's supposed to be. At times it may even have felt depressing because we have so much to thank God for, we need to open our mouths and sing. And if we're going to nurture our relationship with God, then our first priority will be celebrating his saving goodness, not only here on a Sunday, but throughout the week as well. King David prayed in the Psalms, restore to me the joy of your salvation. And that ought to be our daily prayer as God's people. Remind me what you've done and give me that joy again in your goodness. We said earlier that the other aspects of our relationship with God are the overflow of our celebration. And we can see the overflow in verses 12 to 15 which show us relationship with God involves committing to live a life of goodness. As we live in the light of God's goodness to us, it follows that we will show goodness to others. And we'll be concerned in all situations to do what is good in the eyes of our good God. And these verses point to a life of goodness on the horizontal level towards other people, And they point to goodness on the vertical level towards God. Look at the goodness to others in verses 12 and 13. When you finish setting aside a tenth of all your produce in the third year, the year of the tithe, you shall give it to the Levite, the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat in your towns and be satisfied. Then say to the Lord your God, I have removed from my house the sacred portion and have given it to the Levite, the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, according to all you commanded. I have not turned aside from your commands, nor have I forgotten any of them. Earlier in the book, in chapter 14, we heard that every year the Israelites would set aside a tenth of their produce, 
also known as a tithe. And that tithe was used for a celebration feast to the Lord. But every third year, the tithe would be given to provide for those who had no land of their own to farm. That group is described generally as the Levite, the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. So the Israelites' experience of God's goodness flowed out into concrete acts of goodness to others. Not just wishing them well, but doing them good. And here, the mention of the third year tithe is just an example of all the ways God's people are to do good to others. You can see that at the end of verse 13. The worshiper says, I've given the third year tithe, and I haven't forgotten your other instructions about doing good. So giving generously is just one way we're to do good. And along with goodness to those in need, we can include all the situations and relationships mentioned in chapters 21 to 25. Doing good within our families, with our neighbors, in our business. Whatever ways our lives touch others day to day, our experience of God's goodness to us will lead us to touch their lives with goodness. Not with bitterness, not with deceit, not taking advantage of them, but instead treating them fairly, respectfully, considerately, compassionately. That's the horizontal aspect of living a life of goodness, how we relate to other people. Verse 14 deals with the vertical aspect of a life of goodness how we relate to God. Having received His undeserved saving love, we recognize that He is the perfectly holy, spotless one. And we respond with a concern for holiness and purity in our lives. In verse 14, the worshiper is still talking about their offering, the tithe. And they say, I have not eaten any of the sacred portion while I was in mourning nor have I removed any of it while I was unclean, nor have I offered any of it to the dead. I have obeyed the Lord my God. I have done everything you commanded me. So the details here are not about relating to other people. They're about avoiding things that made a person ceremonially unclean, like contact with a dead body when in mourning. And they're about avoiding pagan worship rituals, like offering sacrifices to the dead. But notice again, this mention of eating is just one example of a concern for holiness in all of life. I have done everything you commanded me about holiness. Now today, we don't have these food rituals. We don't have these regulations about ceremonial cleanness. But as we grow in our appreciation of God's goodness to us, we will want to turn our backs on things that are offensive to Him. We will be careful about the kind of language we use day to day, the kind of online content we watch, the kind of music we listen to. We will pay attention to what we feed into our minds and our hearts day to day. 
And I don't just mean we'll be careful about that because we have to. I mean we'll be careful about it because we know our God loves us and we want to deepen our relationship with him. And we know that wallowing in filth is not going to deepen our relationship with him. We turn our back on the filth in whatever form we might be tempted to jump into it. We turn our back on it because we have something better. And we want to enjoy that something better. We don't want anything to be a hindrance to our fellowship with God. And you see the balance there is here to a life of goodness, as it's set out in these verses. There is a focus very much on me and God in verse 14, but that doesn't blind us to the needs of others and how we can bless others. That's clear in verses 12 and 13. Or if we look at it the other way around, our concern for helping others, verses 12 and 13, it doesn't cause us to forget our private intimacy with God. Verse 14. Now, all of us will have a tendency to lean towards one or the other of those. Some of us find it easy to spend time examining our hearts, dealing with our sins and temptations alone with God. But we might find that we struggle to notice the needs of others. We might have to work hard on ourselves to get up and do something to serve others. Others of us will find it comes pretty naturally to us to be busy and involved in other people's lives. But we struggle to step off the treadmill long enough to listen to God. To consider what sins might be creeping into our hearts and lives what behaviors we might need to change. A life of goodness will be a life that's affected privately and publicly by our experience of God's love. And so this week you might want to think about which aspect of goodness comes more easily to you and which aspect you're more likely to neglect. Are you more about service to others or more about a concern for personal and private holiness? Let's ask God to show us which one we might tend to neglect and let's commit to live a life of goodness on both those fronts. And as we pray for one another this week, let's ask God to bless our brothers and sisters with a growing appreciation of his love and lives of growing goodness as they respond to his love. Here in our passage, verse 15, encourages Israel to pray that way. In their situation, look down from heaven, your holy dwelling place, and bless your people Israel. We can pray that God will not only bless us in our relationship with him, but all of us. And then finally in our passage, relationship with God means God and his people moving forward together. 
as we read verses 16 to 19 again, notice the balance there is here between the people's commitment to God and his commitment to them. Verse 16, the Lord your God commands you this day to follow these decrees and laws. That's a reference to the whole of chapters 12 to 26. Carefully observe them with all your heart and with all your soul. You have declared this day that the Lord is your God and that you will walk in obedience to him, that you will keep his decrees, commands, and laws, that you will listen to him. And the Lord has declared this day that you are his people, his treasured possession, as he promised, and that you are to keep all his commands. He has declared that he will set you in praise, fame, and honor, high above all the nations he has made, and that you will be a people holy to the Lord your God, as he promised. Isn't it striking how this is presented as a two-sided relationship? God and his people moving forward together, committed to one another. It is a true relationship. And at the same time, notice how the commitment is not the same on both sides. The Lord does not commit himself to follow Israel's commands and to do Israel's will. This is a relationship where God is in charge. In fact, he owns his people and they listen carefully to him and obey him. But that is no hardship for his people. It's their privilege to belong to such a good and gracious king. There's no greater honor than being the treasured possession of this loving, saving God. You and I do not lose out by being the weak, dependent partner in this relationship. We bring our puniness and our daftness and God brings his matchless strength and his perfect wisdom. He gains nothing. We gain everything. Because he treasures us as puny and daft as we all are. He is the king in need of nothing. And he promises us more than we ask or imagine. As we journey on together, our weakness carried along by his strength, he will lead us in the end to a place of praise, fame, and honor. And it will not be because we suddenly become awesome and fantastic. No, our praise, fame, and honor will come from the fact that this awesome God lifted us from our lostness and misery and made us his treasured possession. He set our feet upon a rock. He gave us a firm place to stand, secure forever in his love. We have lots to boast about, but it's all boasting about him and what he has done for us. And so we will be famous through all eternity as the unlovely people God chose to love. We will be famous as the people God persevered with 
until we became finally lovely like him. So in the meantime, let's commit to move forward with our God, depending on him, listening to him as we celebrate his goodness and as we pursue a whole life of goodness. Our last two songs give us an opportunity to respond to what we've heard. We're going to join in the song that we learned earlier, The Goodness of God, and then we'll sing Good and Gracious King.